Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. I am so glad here we are in the middle of the summer that you've decided to tune in to Calvary St. George's. Our gospel reading is um, part two of a two-part scene in Matthew chapter 16. And if you haven't listened to Jim's sermon from last week, where he goes over kind of the part one of the scene, well, after this service, I want to encourage you, uh, run, don't walk to our Calvary St. George's sermon podcast and give it a listen because his sermon is excellent. Now, if you recall from last week, the setting, Jesus is in and the disciples are in the city of what's called Caesarea Philippi. This is in the northern part of Israel, or what is technically uh, southern Lebanon in what is known as the Golan Heights. And this area was a popular vacation place in Jesus' day for Roman officials because everything about it, it was established essentially to remind the pagan world of their pagan homelands. Jim and I have actually been to Caesarea Philippi, and when you go there, there remains all of these old temples to all of the various gods. And the principal god of Caesarea Philippi was Pan. He was this like half-goat, half-man deity who represented the god of everything, because they had all these pagans coming from all over the place. It was kind of this the God of everything. And so they had these notches in the wall, in the stone wall there uh, to put the lesser deities. And uh, if you take a look right now, you can see when Jim and I were there, we were kind of so amazed by these little notches. Just kidding. But the patron God of Caesarea Philippi, as I said, was Pan. And so he was the God of everything. And it's into this situation that Jesus asks this question of his disciples, which the entire Bible is actually pointing to. Who do you say that I am? And if you remember from last week, Peter gets an A+. He has the divinely inspired answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The emphasis being on living God, because they are in the midst of all of these stone idols— They're just concoctions of the human psyche. And if you remember, uh, Peter is commended by Jesus for this answer. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So this is the scene in which our gospel reading takes place. This is part two now. And Jesus begins to explain to the disciples what it actually means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what it means literally is to go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the scribes, to top it all off, be killed, and then on the third day be raised. In shorthand, what Jesus says it is to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is the cross before glory. The cross, well, this, in its most realistic form, is not the heavenly beatific vision St. Peter 
or any of us would have in mind. When we read this passage, it's really easy for us to come down on Peter. Oh, that Peter, there he is again, you know. However, when you really think about it, the description would have been offensive to the ears of the disciples. Historically, they and all the Jews, even still today, are hoping for a Christ who is victorious, a Christ who is glorious, one who will subject the world to both his earthly and divine authority. And in fairness to Peter, everything they've seen so far points to this reality. Hence, blessed Peter, A+, Simon Barjona, he knows what's going on with God and how God should operate, just like you and me, of course. We know what's going on with God and how he should operate. And so Peter here begins to rebuke Jesus. The Greek word here is is literally he chides Jesus, almost the way a parent would correct an obstinate four-year-old child. Far be it from you, Lord. This must never happen to you. And it's in this moment that Peter goes from the blessed one to Satan. And we are in so many ways no different. I mean, how many times did we hear both the DNC and the RNC invoke the name of God and even invoke the name of Jesus to shield us from the boogeyman that's to come. How many times have we heard the name of Jesus invoked as a means to our glorious and amazing life, a means to our end where everything will work out for me? This is my first point. There's an old Roman saying, which Peter obviously understood. What happens to the master happens to his servants. So, of course, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Because deep down, Peter, just like all of us, believes in life. If you hang out with Jesus long enough, or even if you don't, everything should just kind of magically work out. None of us want to be rejected. Nobody really wants to die. Because as that great band Radiohead reminds us, you and I ultimately think life is about control. We want a perfect body. We want a perfect soul. We want you to notice when we're not around. Because, hey, you're special. And I wish I was special. And in the flawed here and now, the way we naturally think it should work out, that's just glory talk. And the glory without the cross, to that, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Several years ago, I got to preach at a chapel service for the Atlanta Falcons right before they played the New York Giants. 
And as a New York sports fan, I reminded them in that chapel service that Jesus really does love losers. Of course, none of them thought that was funny at all. Like I realized at that moment that I just completely lost them. They were there to all get juiced up. You know, Jesus is their means to a victory. And so, yeah, it just didn't hit. And then so uh, they asked me to stay afterwards to pray for anybody who wanted to be prayed for. And of course, nobody came. And just as I was getting ready to leave, one player came up to me. And he wanted some prayer and he wanted to talk through something. And he began by telling me his entire life story. He told me that his father was his high school football coach. And that from a young age, he and his father knew that someday he would play in the NFL. His father made sure that he went to all the right camps, had all the right weight coaches, was on the right diet. And in high school, he was an all-star. And when he went to college, he was an all-star. And although he wasn't drafted, he made the Falcons' special team. You know, he'd put in the prayer, he'd put in the time, and it seemed like he had everything. And he was just so thankful to God. His whole life, his whole identity, his glory was wrapped up in being a football player. And Jesus functioned as the means to that end for him. All glory, all the time. However, if you know anything about special teams, and I learned it that evening, that is one of the roughest places to be because everyone on special teams has something to prove. And in a preseason practice that year, just a couple of weeks before, He was injured. I didn't tell you that he came into the meeting with this huge cast. I mean, literally from his hip down to his ankle. And at the end of the story, this huge man with tears in his eyes told me that earlier that week, the Falcons told him they were letting him go. And even worse, because that happens all the time, he was not going to be picked up by another team. The injury looked that bad. And he just began to buckle over and he began to cry. And these weren't even tears of loss. These were tears of devastation. This was a lifetime of identity because of one practice. Gone. I'll never forget it. Because on one level there, I was watching that young man die. He was experiencing, and I was watching life in that moment as Jesus teaches it right here. Jesus knows what life actually is all about, and he lets us in on it as he lays out his ministry. He lets us in in on it as he as he articulates the ministry of the cross, which includes loss, which includes rejection and death. Therefore, because Jesus teaches us the cross, life as it actually is, as Christians, we can live with confidence that through the cross, 
God is not shocked by any of the disappointments that hit us square in the face. God is not shocked by COVID. God is not shocked by riots. God is not shocked by your cancer. God is not shocked by aggressive police officers. God is not shocked by corruption. God is not shocked by suffering and death of any kind. And this is my second point. When Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and die, Jesus is teaching us to understand life in this age, not as we think it should be, but as it actually is. And that in this age, more often than not, life is defined not by the victories, but by the defeats. There's a story of a young monk who worked, um, the, uh, the, um, the monastery had a number of shops, and this young monk was put in charge of the candle-making shop of the monastery. And one day they were making a lot of candles, and he just kind of lost track of everything, and a fire started in the monastery. And it ultimately burned the entire monastery down. And there all of the monks were looking at the rubble of the monastery, the smolder and the smoke. And the young monk just felt absolutely awful. What was God? Where was God? You know, and what does God think of me? It was at this moment that the abbot of the monastery placed his hand on the young monk's shoulder and said, Have you thanked God for today's failure yet? Have you thanked God for today's failure yet? In that moment, the abbot was reminding the young monk. The abbot is reminding all of us of the truth that while gains in this life may be great, no amount of gaining, apart from only Jesus, can save you. And this is where the actual good news of the cross begins to come into focus. For the cross, the one which bears a crucified Messiah, says, understand the world as it actually is. Passing, fading away, dying. And this is profoundly articulated when Jesus says to the disciples in our reading today, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, there's something you need to understand here, because it's at this moment that a preacher will give you seven tips for losing your life. Have you ever heard of anything more ridiculous? Losing your life is not something you do. Yet like that young football player, it's often the result of something happening to you. We are acted upon in life, and there are things that are out of our control where we have had our lives lost, whether you know it or whether you, you wanted to or not. It just slipped right through your hands like sand on the beach. And in light of that, think about your life right now in terms of winning and losing. Where is your identity apart from Jesus? Where is your identity 
plus Jesus. Maybe for you it's in your job, in your children. Maybe for you it's in your family. Maybe for you it's right now in being a New Yorker. Maybe for you it's in your sexuality. Maybe for you it's in your party affiliation and political ideas. Think about your life in terms of gaining and losing. And when you begin to really honestly think about it like that, you begin to see that all of these identities are just forms of justification apart from Jesus. They're idols, like the ones surrounding the disciples in Caesarea Philippi. What Jesus is communicating to Peter, what Jesus is communicating to the disciples and all of us, when he says, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it, is that there's actually freedom in losing everything. It may not seem like it in the moment, but there's actually freedom in losing Because ultimately, when there's nothing else left, all you have is Jesus. All you have is that which is eternal and never fades away. Real life has nothing to do with success in human terms. I think we're all coming to realize that in light of COVID. But rather, like our Lord... It has to do with loss, so that we might be pulled up from ourselves to maybe for the first time see our neighbor truly, maybe for the first time even to taste eternal life. Jesus, on the cross, rejected, suffering, and dying, there, God tells us that oftentimes, It's when we finally lose, we really win. And this is my third point. You may be a loser in this age, but there's good news in that. Because as a loser, all you have to have is Jesus. This is my third point, because Jesus was raised on the third day. You know, the cross then begins to enable us to face our losses with confidence in the knowledge that, as the psalmist writes, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can face your losses. Because he, your good shepherd, is for you. And his rod and his staff, his cross, they comfort you. You're given the word through the cross that God is faithful. And your losses, in his eyes, do not define you. But rather, his merit and his victory over death now define you. And that because of him, in an eternal sense, you've already gained everything. You've already gained the treasures of heaven. You've already gained all of his grace, all of his mercy, and all of his righteousness. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Lord Jesus, 
by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make it so in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.